You're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. To find out more about today's topic or check out some of our other episodes, along with maps, images, documents, and other materials related to the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East, visit us on the web at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. I'm Erin Hutchinson. Today on the program, we're welcoming Kelly O'Neill, Associate Professor of History at Harvard University and Project Director of the Imperia Project, which is an experiment in historical GIS of the Russian Empire. Professor O'Neill, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. We're really happy to have you here. And for um, one of my collaborators, Michael Polchinski, who is the curator of the the Wild Field uh, podcast uh, series, which is affiliated with our website, um, and all of the followers of that podcast, they'll be very excited about uh, today's topic titled Crimea and the Russian Empire. Uh, this is an episode that fits in very nicely with uh, our prior interview with Denise Klein about crime, the Crimean Khanate and the Ottoman world, the relationship between the Crimea uh, and the Ottoman Empire during the early modern period, roughly 1500 to 1800. We're kind of picking up where Denise leaves off in a way, mm-hmm. uh, talking about this early period of incorporation uh, of Crimea into the Russian sphere during the late uh, 18th century and into the 19th century. So to start off, could you just give us a little overview of the historical context of this borderlands region in the 18th century, Crimea, the lay of the land, and whatnot? Sure, I'll, I'll do my best. Uh, in the 18th century, as you know, it, um, it's referred to as the wild field for all kinds of good reasons. Yeah. This is really an exciting, highly contested uh, frontier zone in Eastern Europe, and it hasn't yet, the 18, over the course of the 18th century, it becomes really a frontier battlefield between the Russian and, and Ottoman empires, but it yep. doesn't really start that way. You know, the, the earlier history of the late 17th and early mid 18th century, um, there are lots of other players mm-hmm. in the field, and it's a really interesting and dynamic place. And the Crimean Khanate, that's, they're one of the, the major uh, players in the, in the field, along with uh, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth mm-hmm. and Muslim. Uh, which is being kind of reconfigured as as the Russian Empire as you hit the reign of Peter the Great. Um, and there are lots of other colorful nomadic and semi-nomadic peoples who yeah. are ranging through this area. And all of them, the, the Nogai in particular, play an important role in shaping the political and social landscape of, of the 18th century. So it is um, in many ways can be seen and is often seen as a contested territory between mm-hmm. large imperial powers, yep. but it has its own internal right. coherence. It, its own dynamic and um you know it's it's a region that doesn't need the empires to define it sure i mean in many ways these borderlands almost have that inherent they can also be seen as a center absolutely by virtue of their 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 um, sort of intersectional uh, position absolutely and the crimean cons would be very happy to to see themselves in that yeah. from that perspective yeah so your work um, has largely dealt with the early period of incorporation of Crimea into the Russian Empire, which uh, in comparison with some of the other territories of the historical Russian Empire that we know of in the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, that incorporation happens fairly early. So I'll start by kind of raising the question of how do you characterize the relationship between 
the region of Crimea, its the local politics there and local communities, and the Russian Empire during this period. Um, do you see this as part of the story of uh, Russian colonization, early Russian colonization and expansion, uh, or is there another story to tell there? I think there's another story to tell there. It's not entirely divisible from the story of, of colonization and mm-hmm. imperialization, but there are all kinds of, of narratives that this particular iteration of imperial expansion tap into, whether it's the um, kind of the end game of the story of um, Eurasian empire that have swept across the mm-hmm. steppe largely from east to west for centuries. It's kind of the the pendulum really swinging the other way. It's kind of the end of that story. It's also part of the story of the northern and southern contest between Mm -hmm. Istanbul and and St. Petersburg. To me, the most important and interesting thing about the relationship between the Crimean Khanate and and the Russian Empire is that this is, although the Russian Empire has had Muslim peoples in it for a long time, they conquered Kazan and Astrakhan centuries before, There are lots of people along the the Volga-Ural region. Um, This is the first time that the empire is expanding in this direction and taking in new subjects who are are Muslim and who are Tatar in the aftermath of the embrace of the Enlightenment and Enlightenment principles. Mm -hmm. And so it's a new mode, kind of a new day of empire building. And there are new ideas circulating in the Russian empire about what it means to be Russian, what it means to be an empire. And a lot of those ideas get tested in Crimea. They're very famously um, addressed in the Caucasus and later in Central yeah. Asia in the 19th century. But a lot of those episodes are in a way echoes um, or related to um, experiments that happen in Crimea. It's kind of in a way a laboratory um, of empire building. And looking outward from uh, the Ottoman Empire, the Middle East, uh, people have often seen that latter 19th century period also as a period of colonization. Absolutely. And indeed, Russia even evoked the experience of other colonial empires in mm-hmm. their conquest of the Caucasus, for example. And it's hard not to see it that way. But right. uh, as our listeners might remember from an earlier episode with Eileen Kane about her new book, uh, Russian Hodge, which is mm-hmm. a very interesting read, uh, we do see that there is this kind of more complex relationship between the Russian Empire and Islam, not just one of colonization per se, but one of sincere, I guess, engagement precisely yeah. for, for the purpose uh, of ruling over uh, Muslim subjects and indeed kind of seeing those subjects as an extension of the Russian domain. I was curious um, if you could perhaps trace the trajectory a little bit and compare the incorporation of um, Kazan um, and the Tatar regions with the incorporation of um, the Crimean regions. What sort of has changed or how do we see the impact of the Enlightenment thinking that's uh, sort of current in this time if we look at some, if we compare it with something that happened, say, mm-hmm. 250 years earlier? Well, there are certain things that remain the same. There are certain con- continuities that are important to bear in mind. One of the important things that the Russian Empire, Russian agents of, of Russian Empire building are always good at is identifying members of local elites, right, mm-hmm. and, and striking deals with them, striking bargains. And that's certainly something that is a continuity between Kazan and, and Crimea. Some of the things that are different, um, even if we take the the role of local elites in the kind of the story of the unfolding of empire, um, it happens as well in Crimea that the um, Grigory Potemkin, who's essentially the viceroy of the South, Catherine the Great's mm-hmm. kind of right hand man, who's in charge of the implementing the annexation, um, 
makes it his business to to locate men of power and and strike deals with them. All of that looks very much like some of the things that that go on in Kazan, but they mm-hmm. mean something very different. And the the aftermath, the cost of um, whether you see it as collusion or cooperation with empire is right. different in Crimea, and what the empire is willing to give is is very different. Um, and there, there, I think the role of religion is also actually something that um, plays out very differently in Crimea than it had in, in Kazan. Could you elaborate on that? Sure, sure. Um, there are you know very famous, colorful stories about the aftermath of the conquest of Kazan that that um, anyone familiar with Russian history would know. But they involve you know forcible conversion and the destruction of mosques, in mm-hmm. particular the major mosque in in the city of Kazan, and. You know, this was the reign of Ivan Grozny, Ivan the Terrible, where we see the the conquest of Kazan, and the, there is this notion of the real imposition of Russian authority and an Orthodox Christian identity. And there are all kinds of ways to really complicate that story, for sure. Um, and Matt Romaniello is um, the author of a great book on on the conquest of of Kazan. But in Crimea, you see things working a little bit differently. In Crimea. The Russians are always thinking both about the Crimean Tatars as Muslim subjects, and they're also thinking about the knock-on effect that how they treat these Muslim subjects will impact their relations with the Ottoman Empire. Uh Um, So there's kind of a triangulation going on. And although... I, I can you can you can question me on this, but the the in the immediate aftermath of annexation, you don't see the destruction of of mosques in Crimea. Mm-hmm. And you see relative um, support given to the Islamic establishment, Islamic institutions. So it in, in a way, it looks a little bit more friendly um, to Islam, and in part, that's because supposedly of Catherine's embrace of mm-hmm. enlightened ideals of, you know, embracing religion and, um, you know, a t- kind of a touchier, feelier kind of mode of empire oh, yeah. building. As long as you're not Ukrainian uh, unit. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We can qualify that in lots of ways. And it's also true that one of the reasons why you don't see widespread destruction of mosques in Crimea after 1783 is because they did a bit of that before 1783. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and there's a really interesting history of what happens to both mosques and waqf establishments um, in the aftermath of annexation that's one of the, I think, really interesting untold stories um, about the empire. Yeah. And so, yeah, I guess, you know, it's in this aftermath of a periods of hostility between the Ottoman Empire to go back to that mm-hmm. to that relationship and, and the Russian Empire. We do see this brief period of, I guess you're saying, of a less uh, heavy handed and invasive approach to uh, Islamic um, Muslim communities and mm-hmm. Islamic institutions. Tell us a little bit yeah. more about the waqf. Sure. That, that you that you brought up just now. Sure. What happens to Waqf? You know, okay, to set up for, for the listeners who don't know, it's uh, Islamic in, uh, endowments, uh, a category of property, essentially, of Islamic endowments. What happens with that uh, story in the Crimean context? Well, it's it's in a way a good example of a, that helps us understand how Russian authorities dealt with um, Islam and the Muslim peoples of the Crimean Khanate um, more broadly. Um, in that they they had this idea that it would be good to support Islam that they didn't yeah. want to alienate 
the Muslim subjects that they wanted to prove themselves to be enlightened empire builders by finding space within the empire, not just for Muslim peoples, but for Muslim institutions. And that included members of the ulema, and it included uh, included the pious endowments as well. So in the immediate aftermath, kind of the 20 years after annexation, uh, the endowments were allowed to exist and to continue functioning as they had before, whether they were supporting Mm -hmm. um, schools or supporting you know, particular mosques, all of that was kind of left in place. And it wasn't until relatively late, I think a lot later than people might think, that the Russian Empire, Russian authorities begin to really interfere with what is, I think, a very crucial, you know, Islamic institution. It happens later. It happens um, kind of a... in the 1830s, 1840s, is when the Russian authorities begin to really think carefully about property. Yeah. In this, what has been renamed as um, Tavrichiskaya Gubiernia, the Tavrida um, province, um, how property works, property ownership, land use rights, all of that becomes really important then. Um, and it's really in the 1830s that they begin to start to devote sincere, kind of substantial amounts of time and energy to understanding exactly how WAKF works mm-hmm. and understanding exactly. Who are the members of the ulema? How do they get appointed? How do all of these things really work? How can we document mm-hmm. this process? And if it can't be documented, well, maybe it's something, you know, the empire can can change, you know, to fit, mm-hmm. suit its own interests. If it can be documented, well, then we'll have to think carefully about it. Um, so you move into that kind of mode as you move throughout the 19th century. And then by the end of the 19th century, we actually have um, a list, the Ministry of the Interior, um, put together a list of all of the pious endowments um, within this province that were still existing in the 1870s. So we have mm-hmm. a list of exactly where they were and um, you know how much revenue they were generating and whether they were um, categorized as public or private. Yeah. Um, so they were still in existence uh, in in this province, uh, you know, a century after annexation, despite the fact that by that point, much of their energy had been sapped. Well, I mean, I should probably remember this from my conversation with Eileen, but do they eventually um, dissolve the Vuks, like, you know, before the end of the Russian Empire? Well, the the great thing is the empire insists on documenting before they dissolve, (laughs) before they mess with them. So, um, So they don't actually get around to dissolving them. What they do is they declare that private, if it if it is a private waqf, then it is essentially in contradiction to imperial law. Um, but if it is a public uh, walk, then those can be maintained. And so that's what the Ministry of the Interior is trying to, to tease out in the 1870s and 80s. And I haven't seen documents that prove that they followed through on uh, dissolving or eradicating the institution completely. Mm-hmm. It was actually kind of a surprising thing to me to find evidence of that kind of longevity because it's just not something that you you know, see or talk very much about the existence sure. of, of Waqf within the Russian Empire, but they are certainly there. I mean, in a lot of these 19th century empires, if you look at uh, French North Africa, mm-hmm. or British South Asia, you, you do see this emerging legal pluralism. Absolutely. Sort of Absolutely. In, in absence of taking a clear stand on, you know, what the law, the, the universal law of the land is going to be, just essentially multiple forums, multiple categories of, of, of property and civil status that are kind of going on at this time. Uh, I want to pick up on that. Uh, you, you evoked the um, 
ulama, mm-hmm. right? The 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 learned Islamic notables uh, in the Crimea, and I, I want to talk more broadly about uh, the incorporation of elites in the empire, particularly the elites of Crimea into the Russian Empire, but more broadly about this kind of uh, interesting heterogeneity among the elite of the Russian Empire during this period? Well, there's a lot to say about that. Um, I guess the first thing that would need to be said is that from the Russian perspective, secular and ecclesiastical elites are two very different kettles of fish. And and so we, we can talk about the um, the treatment of the the ulema in Crimea, and it ties into the story of of the Muslim institutions elsewhere in the empire. Um, essentially, what the empire does is try to both support Islam, but to support it in a way that suits their own interests. Right? They're mm-hmm. very pragmatic mm-hmm. in a sense, and and not very unique in terms of you know what empires do. Um, on the secular on the the topic of secular elites, here's where you really get um, you get some interesting stories. And it's hard to talk about the Crimean Tatar elite. I think it's it's in, in fact a bit irresponsible to think about their own particular story um, as if it can be separated from the story of what happens to elites, for example, in Ukraine and the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth and in okay. the Caucasus. Yeah, I mean, these are all part of it's a, it's a you know pan imperial kind kind of story about thinking about what it means to be a member of the Russian elite and what it means to be a member in particular of the Russian nobility, the Dvoryanstva. Um, and the interesting thing, well, there are lots of interesting things, and I'll try to not talk too much, but you know, one of the interesting things is that at the, the precise moment that Russia is moving into Crimea and moving into Ukraine and beginning to move into the Caucasus, it's the same moment where they're also rethinking the terms of membership in the Dvoryanstva in general. So it's not just a question of, well, can a Crimean Tatar be a member of the Russian elite? It's also, how can we be sure that this particular Russian Orthodox you know, subject is a proper member of the Russian nobility? And all of these things are being sure. reconsidered yeah. and being rehashed in the 1780s, the latter part of the reign of Catherine the Great. So you have, it's both a story of, you know, ethnic and confessional heterogeneity. It's also you know what what's kind of implicit in that but needs to be explicit is that it's also a story about thinking what it means to be russian mm-hmm. um in particular so and and that gets played out um in interesting ways and in in a large part it, it's part of this enlightened imperial turn where again you see this desire at least to rely on processes of documentation and regulation and standardization um you know modernization mm-hmm. all of those wonderful you know keywords buzzwords get trotted out um but you know if you dig a little bit more deeply into the not just the the processes the procedures that the empire implements but also the response that you see from the peoples along the frontier in particular but also Mm -hmm. within interior provinces how they define themselves how they seek to um you know define their own identity within the framework that the empire provides then you begin to see some colorful stories emerge and does this extend to, you know, Crimean notables ascending to higher ranks within the imperial, you know, hierarchy writ large, you know, the political hierarchy in the Russian Empire? Yes, but for a very, very small number. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can count on, certainly on one hand, the number of individuals who rise to the very high ranks. Um, Crimean Tatars tend to do, those who do relatively well, um, they're almost all but one or two of them rise through the ranks, the military ranks. Mm-hmm. They do oh, relatively yeah. well in the in the army, which makes good sense. And that generally happens almost 
every case I can think of, you see a Crimean Tatar achieving relatively high military rank in the course of the Napoleonic Wars. They're, of course, sent to fight against Napoleon rather than being used against the Ottomans, you know, in 1806, 1812. But they're used then, they're used in the, along the southern borders um, later in the 1820s. But so they do relatively well, you know, in, in military service. There are only one or two that achieve really high civil rank. I see. But there are a couple. Um, and they tend to be, in fact, the two that rise to the highest in civilian rank. One of them is a member of the, the second most important dynasty in Crimea, the Shirin clan. And the other is a member of a relatively young upstart kind of service clan that had not been in the upper echelons in the, the age of the Crimean Khans. Mm-hmm. And is it the case that um, a lot of a lot of uh, Crimean Tatars leave right after the mm-hmm. sort of Russian uh, incorporation annexation? Um, so could you talk a little bit maybe about who left and why and then who remained in Crimea? Yeah. Oh, gosh. So they leave in multiple waves. Right. There are some members of the elite who see the writing on the wall even before the actual annexation manifesto in April of 1783. They leave before that. There's another wave that leaves in, you know, in that immediate aftermath. There's another wave that leaves after um, Russia defeats the Ottoman Empire in the next Russian-Ottoman War in 1791-92 as that treaty, peace treaty, is worked out. More leave. More leave in 1806. Um, there are multiple waves of, of flight. And, the you know, the idea that, you know, historian those who have written about this have said anyone who could leave did. Mm. Right. And that's more or less true. But what's interesting is that some people who could leave didn't. There mm. are members of the Shirin clan, the Mansur clan, the, there are Balatukovs, there are Argin, um, Sijay. There are all kinds of, of clan members who do remain. And sure, a lot of them are younger brothers mm. or cousins, um, not necessarily the most influential members of the clans, but they retain their claims to ownership of property and they do relatively well. Um and the other thing is that although a lot of people leave, some of them come back. Oh, wow. Sure. Yeah. You and see a lot of that. You see that, a yeah. lot of going back and forth across the Black Sea. You know, and, there's, and there are really great documents, you know, showing this in these petitions. And the great thing is that although Potemkin and Catherine the Great declared that anyone who leaves the boundaries of the Russian Empire after annexation, you're, you're, this is a treasonous move. You can't come back. Yeah. But in practice, every single... Crimean who applied to come back, who had gone to the Ottoman Empire and came back, they were all approved and they were all welcomed with open arms and it was not a problem at all mm. to be border to be a border crosser. That's very interesting. I mean you you see a lot of the themes you just described for the for the earlier part of the nineteenth century really kind of intensifying during the latter half of the nineteenth century. You know, both these large exoduses, but also oh, yeah. still people continuing to return and move back and forth in times of peace. You know, I think the the, the Russo Ottoman uh, frontier is very important for understanding like the making of of modern refugee um, oh, yeah. uh, situations uh, throughout the world and, and the history of displacement. Um, yeah, displacements becoming more or less uh, permanent uh, through time. Something certainly worth discussing and thinking about. Uh, not only within the context of modern nation states, but again, during these early imperial transformations. Absolutely. You know, the biggest wave of, of, of migration across the Black Sea from Crimea to the Ottoman Empire happens after the Crimean War. Exactly. Right. And I just want you to know, yes, I do know about yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't let it go un- unsaid. I mean, that's really, you know, in a sense why in, in my book about this, I kind of end the story in the 1860s, 1870, because yeah. the demographic shift that happens in Crimea is just so 
huge, and it, it really happens in the 1860s. So just wanted to make sure we all sure, have yeah. that on the table. And absolutely, our <laughs> listeners can find discussion of that uh, topic from other angles. You yes. know, I mean, the kind of journey that Nogai Tatars, for example, uh, you know, went on into the Ottoman Empire, the settlements that were created out of those communities, mm-hmm. those who survived the journey. Uh, those those began to transform the whole social landscape of uh, Anatolia, and so there's a whole other story there. Yeah. But on, on the on the issue of uh, displacement, let's talk a little bit about the slave trade, which is um, an an ignored. I mean, okay, it's not an ignored aspect of Black Sea history, but the Black Sea history, Black Sea slave trade, is arguably uh, an ignored uh, segment of the global slave trade, at least within the historiography, which largely focuses or used to focus on the Atlantic. In a previous episode, I'll evoke Michael Polchinski again, we had done a sort of a comparative discussion of of, uh, different arenas of of the early modern slave trade, looking at trafficking in all its forms. Uh, And as Michael pointed out, uh, in fact, the Black Sea was one of the um, largest sources uh, for the broader Mediterranean slave trade at one point. Could you... uh, you know, set that up a little bit for us? Sure. No, I, well, it's absolutely true. I mean, um, really it's heyday, I think, is in the 17th century mm-hmm. where estimates range as high as twenty to 30,000 yeah. people per year being harvested from, mainly from the, the wild fields, right, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, north of Crimea and less so from the Caucasus, but also from the Caucasus. But this is pulling, you know, from Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and and the territories, um, you know, moving toward, toward Muscovy. Those numbers drop. Right. Once you get to the 18th century, but you know, because 20. it's because it's slave raiding of of mm-hmm. Christian communities uh, for sale into um, markets of of the Ottoman Empire of Muslim communities, yeah, right? So the, the, the incorporation part. of Crimea into the Russian Empire, in theory, um, would sort of prohibit that slave trade to some extent. Yeah. Well, right. Implicitly, certainly not right. explicitly. Okay. Um, but yeah, the idea is that one of the great things, and one of you know the the orators and you know um, agents of publicity in the Russian Empire, one of the reasons why they could mm-hmm. sell the annexation of Crimea was precisely that they could put an end to the story of of weeping and sorrow mm-hmm. and misery on the southern frontier. Always right? a good uh, reason. To, always a good uh, justification for an invasion. Of course, right? you know mm-hmm. the women tearing at their hair and beating their breasts. You know, no one wants to see that. So if you sure. can stop. <laughs> um, but the, you know this, the funny thing is that the Black Sea slave trade continues. It takes different forms and um, and it operates at a different scale, but it, it continues in a relatively ro- robust way um, into the, well into the 20th century. Um, and it you know that might not be pers- so surprising if we're looking at the story from the Ottoman perspective, but I think it at least was surprising to me that there is Russian, there's involvement on the Russian side and the involvement of um, Russian subjects being both sold into slavery, but also um, aiding and abetting in the whole process. And the Russian empire really had to deal with the question of its own stance on slave trade and slavery as opposed Mm -hmm. to serfdom, Mm -hmm. um, in large part because of its involvement in um, the southern frontier region of Crimea and the, and the Caucasus over the course of the 19th century. I, I was just wondering, I know that there is, um, isn't there a famous story in Ottoman history of is it Roxolana? Oh, yeah. So there's been a few, There, I believe she's would be today called Ukrainian. Ukrainian. Mm-hmm. So there are a few, um, you know, really prominent figures in Ottoman history who actually, you know, went over, um, you know, from sure. the wild field uh, via more the slave trade. Yeah. More than a few. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they prized possessions. They, they, I don't think, I'm not sure if they 
fetched as high a price as the the particular beauties of the Caucasus, but they were, yes, prized possessions for for sure. Um, But they weren't just being um, sold into slavery in the Ottoman Empire. You also see them. There are harems being maintained within Crimea 20 years after annexation. And this is something that Russian authorities either pretended that they didn't know or simply didn't know for for quite a while. And it's not until the reign of Alexander I that they begin to really kind of wrangle with the legality of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's fascinating to me simply because um, when you discuss this in, with, in the broader context of slavery, um, especially Atlantic slavery, there is sometimes a sense that... Um, is this, you know, is this really slavery? Because it is different than Atlantic slavery. Um, and so, uh, but it can sometimes sort of be something that we sort of don't think about in the broader picture, but it actually, you know, it is it is having a huge social impact as you're talking about. Oh, it is. And it, it had massive social impact in the Caucasus throughout the 19th century. And I think you're really, you're right on to, to raise the question of, um, you know, why we don't think of this as, as interesting or important a brand of slavery because it looks, you know, it does look different from the, you know, Atlantic slave trade. It's the same exact kind of logic that that many of us use when we think, well, the Russian Empire um, isn't as important because it doesn't really work the same way as the British Empire. Right? Mm-hmm. The British Empire is the model for all empires, and if it, if it doesn't cohere, it's not as important. We've come a long way, I think, those yeah. of us who work on empires. And I think we realize that there are multiple modes of imperial rule and survival and identification. And, and I think you know the same thing happens with the history of slavery and slave trade. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, a listener recently pointed out to me in, in an email that discussion of a slave trade, whether in the Russian context or in, uh, in the Islamic world. And, and you know, it's emphasizing the difference between the type of plantation slavery mm-hmm. in, the, in the Atlantic and other types of slavery. Uh, that were occurring in the Middle East. It almost sounds like you're saying this is slavery light. This isn't, this isn't trafficking and 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 owning of human beings. And it isn't as as bad, so to speak. This is something that someone uh, critiqued about. I guess the broader historiography of the Ottoman Empire in a recent email to me. And yes, it is it is worth pointing out that there is a shared history of bondage there. I know that Ehud Toledano has worked on this quite a bit, and uh, I'm sure that that's a fruitful area of comparison across the Russian and Ottoman. Uh, empires. Absolutely. Yeah. And Alessandro Stanziani, too, has written some interesting pieces that look at the um, broad spectrum of coerced labor and yep. coerced, you know, subjecthood. Yeah. Is it mostly women who are going across the Black Sea on this slave trade or is it also men? Because I sort of stereotypically had thought that it was only women, but I'm actually not sure that's correct. It's not only women. There are, there are men who are being traded as well. Um, although, and I don't know if I can say with great authority what the percentages were um but men were certainly mm. being traded as as well you see them them mentioned there'll be a boat of 40 in our i've seen archival documents where they'll mention a uh, a boat where there are 40 slaves to be sold and 17 of them are men and 12 of them are our children and the rest are, are women um so they're fetching different prices but but it is it is um you see both, and of course, the, the beautiful yeah. women who who you know get most of the headlines, especially when yeah they, in Europe. Yep, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's interesting to compare this. You know, this is the same period we just talked about as a period of enlightenment in the Russian Empire, where you see sort of an accommodation of local practices, mm-hmm. particularly Muslim uh, institutions and practices in the Crimea. The flip side of that accommodation, I guess, or or that you know, we see we also see the continuity of. Um, 
the slave trade, despite increasingly uh, stern um, language and restrictions on that, not only in the Russian Empire, but throughout Europe, precisely during that period. Yeah, I mean, it's an, it's an irony, I think, an, from the Russian perspective, an unpleasant irony that um, their policy of supporting local men of power means supporting, you know, reinforcing their cultural and economic privileges. And that includes, there's actual documents where Pachomkin says, Yes, we're going to allow the Crimean Mirzas and Bays to keep their slaves, their their Yasuri, because uh, this is this is important to them. And so, it, the enlightened ruler is perpetuating the institution of slavery within their boundaries because it is um, a politically expedient to sure. do so, right? And that makes all oh. kinds of good sense. And we see that pattern in the British, <laughs> the British and French empires as well. It's Absolutely, a, it's, a, it's quite an interesting uh, constant, so to speak. Yep. All right, welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton and Aaron Hutchinson uh, recording with Professor Kelly O'Neill at Harvard University about her research on Crimea and the Russian Empire during the 18th and 19th century. Professor O'Neill, as we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, you're also the project director of something called the Imperia Project, which is a historical GIS interface uh, for uh, digital humanities research. So those of us who are at Harvard are pretty familiar with the Imperia project um, and have had the opportunity to hear you speak about it multiple times. But could you, for our listeners, explain a little bit about what it is and um, how it works? Sure. And I'll try not to bore you along the way. (laughs) And I should add that every when I say multiple times, everyone was awesome. (laughs) Of course, of course. Um, So the uh, Historical GIS Project has grown out of my kind of obsession with analog, tangible maps, right? It's hard Mm -hmm. for me to understand. And it was ingrained in me that one cannot understand the history of the Russian Empire without a map at one's elbow so that you can understand the spatial and geographical context of a vast and varied empire. But it drives me nuts that most people who talk about Russian imperial history just say, you know, Russia is a vast place. And, (laughs) you know, it's so big, it's therefore absolutely obvious that space and geography are important to it. But it's very rare to hear someone kind of dig beneath that and try to understand Mm -hmm. why, in what way has space really informed the Russian empire in particular ways or in ways that are comparable to, to other empires, whether they're continental or overseas. So, that was that kind of it's both the product of obsession and frustration um, that led me to start this mapping project. And um, really, the the geographic information system is a way for me to pull together all kinds of information about the Russian Empire, and I, in particular, about Crimea. But I, but this is something that expands across mm-hmm. the empire to pull together information that has some kind of mappable element. Mm-hmm. Which means that it's mm-hmm. some sort of, you know, text or or visual material that can be placed, um, that it you know can be associated with a place on the, the surface of the earth, to bring all of that together and, and begin to try to ask questions that are spatially informed and try to understand exactly how space um, shaped the experience of, of, of Russian imperial history. So, yeah, that's, that's the kind of broad strokes. And basically what that means is I'm trying to put together, I have a bunch of data and I make maps of that data and I put them online so that people can point and mm-hmm. click and um, look around at, at at least some of the information that we have. And um, 
play with the kind of transparency that modern mapping platforms allow us to have between, you know, looking at maps and playing with the data that drives them. Um, I, w- I was interested um, in knowing, um, because I think you're very, you're very right when you say that maps can sort of reveal these different relation, uh, different relationships and spatial relationships in a new way. Like what kind um, of new questions have you come to through this project, through mapping, or perhaps um, some of the students that you've been working with? Well, one of the things that you can't help beginning to believe about the Russian Empire after you spend a long enough time in the imperial archives is that there was nothing more important in the Russian Empire than a provincial boundary, right? That the administrative geography of the empire was just, you know, how it ordered everything, right? Because that's how the archives are ordered. And at a certain point, you begin to believe it, right? That, Mm. you know, Moscow province contains Moscow province and everyone who lives in the province of (laughs) Moscow Mm -hmm. eats this and, you know, does this and goes to this church. And um, one of the really interesting things to me has been to think in different kinds of units, right? To think about routes and to think about river Mm. courses and to think about the various other ways that space can be organized, um, ways that make sense to people who actually inhabit the empire. So people don't necessarily think of themselves primarily as an inhabitant of a particular province, right? They might think of themselves as an inhabitant of a village uh, or a neighbor of a certain constellation of other villages or someone who lives along the Dnieper River or any Mm -hmm. number of other things. And so when you start thinking carefully about space and spatial history, you can think along those lines and try to kind of maybe not complicate, but simply come at some of the um, the history from a slightly different perspective. I think it allows us to get beyond the kind of central mm. um, perspective of administrative geography and can kind of think about different conceptualizations of space. Yeah. You can show us how, you know, instead of everything being connected to the center, how things are moving laterally, revealing different relationships. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's fascinating. Exactly. And so in, to addition, in addition to um, maybe carrying out diachronic analysis of space, um, there's, there's also potential, I saw on the board that's outside your office of some of the project, there's also potential to represent, for example, um, not only migration and movement, but also how space uh, takes on, you know, sort of the temporality of space uh, on, a, on a cyclical basis or an annual basis, a seasonal base, mm. basis. I saw the project with the representation of the markets which differentiated between where what were sites of commerce in, in, in different parts of the year. I think you're absolutely right. I think um, one of the really exciting things about digital humanities tools and methods is that we can think about space through maps and the process of actually mapping. I found that one of the things that's most important isn't what the map, uh, you know, I might produce a map, but the actual, what the map looks like and how good it is cartographically is not very important. But the process of mapping, the mm-hmm. process of actually making the map mm-hmm. is highly analytical and really productive. And um, the process of mapping can involve quantitative material, but yeah. it can also involve the kind of, you know, in a way, you know, what, what you're gesturing toward, the kind of cyclical nature, seasonality, the temporal aspect of yep. place, right, which is really hard to get at on a static map. But when you start to right. think about the concept of a deep map or, you know, a narrative map, you can kind of bring together in one place or in one space all kinds of both temporal and descriptive and qualitative materials that can help you really understand you know, what a particular place meant and how it operated and related to, to others. And that, I don't think there are a lot of 
fabulous examples of that done to scale by historians, mm-hmm. but it's mm-hmm. certainly one of the avenues of, you know, you know, potential of great potential in digital humanities. Sure. I mean, for me, as somebody who studies the history of Cilicia, a region comparable in size to Crimea in many ways, um, movement between the mountains and the plains on a seasonal basis is so fundamental to my work that if I could just generate the right map to, to display that, yeah. it would save me a lot of page space, actually. So I'm, you know, <laughs> right. I'm, I'm really interested in, um, you know, there's, there's, I'm, I'm very distantly part of a of a group of scholars of Ottoman history who are working towards developing a gazetteer uh, for, for historical GIS. And I'm wondering, how did you develop the gazetteer, sort of the, the basis, the, 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 you know, the geographical basis of what became this map project? What did that entail? Um, let's let's really talk nitty gritty. We're 40 minutes into the podcast. So anyone who's <laughs> stayed this long will be interested. Tell us about that. Okay. <laughs> um, well, historical gazetteers, I actually, it, it's, it's a topic, it's a really, really fascinating topic. Um, but the short answer is that um, the method I chose was to compile a gazetteer of place names based on historical at- an atlas that was produced in the 1820s. Mm-hmm. And it was essentially, it's it's regarded as the the first good quality atlas of the entire empire. Mm-hmm. And it was done by um, the general staff of the, the Russian army. And there are better atlases that come along later, but this was the first really good early one. So I used that. I harvested, well, I, in addition to, you know, lots of wonderful graduate students and undergraduates harvested place names and river courses and administrative boundaries from that atlas after, if you really want to know the nitty gritty, when you have a historical atlas, you have to figure out how to make it speak to um, the current standards of cartography. So, Mm. you know, the way that a historical atlas represents the Russian empire isn't the way that Google will tell you um, that Russia looks anyway, right? So you have to go through the georeferencing process. And that that took several years and it took lots, and it took almost all of my research budget and it took enlisting the incredible talents of of a guy who calls himself the Mad Mapper. Um, and he kind of lives on a hilltop in South Africa and he's phenomenal and yeah, that's probably for the, real oh yeah that's okay. really cool <laughs> that's interesting <laughs> yeah so it's a lot of labor but then and it, it really forces you to think about okay now I know where Moscow where they thought you know where they thought of Moscow or they thought of this province in the 1820s how do I relate that to you know province of Kiev as it existed in the 1880s or in the 1920s, you know, came moving backwards and forwards across temporal boundaries. Um, the spatial boundaries, they, they changed too. So it's yeah. compiling mm. a historical gazetteer is a bedeviling process. <laughs> but worth it. But worth it. Completely <laughs> worth it. Yeah. So I, I'm wondering, um, is your is your can your gazetteer speak to existing gazetteers on other regions mm-hmm. of the world like China that there's a very there's a very strong historical GIS project surrounding you know empire in China as well right I mean I've been the beneficiary of the, a lot of the the trailblazing that has been done by my colleague Peter Bull mm-hmm. um, who not only pioneered the China historical GIS project he's also um, the founder founder of the Center for Geographic Analysis here at Harvard. Making my data speak to the data that's been produced by other projects, um, by scholars mm-hmm. here at Harvard and, and elsewhere. Um, I wasn't thinking in those terms when I started, but over the last year, I've been thinking about that quite a lot. And I'm working with um, the GIS specialists at 
the Center for Geographic Analysis and the librarians, um, particularly our librarian here for the the Davis Center, um, who are working on developing our data so that it can be kind of um, plugged into the Pelagios project, which is yep. probably the, um, the the kind of standard bearer. Um, and the idea is to share eventually, you know, to, to make all of the data, not just the place name and geographical mm-hmm. data available, you know, through, through, through that kind of endeavor. But it, yeah, it's complicated. But important, certainly, given the amount of movement, you know, between between Russia, China, Ottoman Empire yeah. that we've already been talking about, it's it's kind of an essential thing to be able to eventually have trans-imperial uh, historical GIS, and, and perhaps it's a it's a great pioneer. But on the other hand, I mean, one of the one of the things I've always been concerned about when thinking about digital humanities projects is that we can build these great tools, but then who's going to use them? Mm-hmm. So I wondered, Aaron, you're a you're a PhD student here at Harvard, working on the the history of the Soviet Union, right? Mm-hmm. Literature and the history of the Soviet Union. I'm wondering what are the, what are, what are the possible applications of this technology for your project? Have you thought about that at all? Now that we have this great Russia GIS, what do we do with it? It's a fascinating question and one that I've been um, grappling with a little bit, especially with the sort of prompting of Professor O'Neill. And for me, well, as a Soviet historian, we don't, uh, the Imperial Project covers the Russian Empire (laughs) Um, and um, not so much the Soviet Union, but just sort of inspired by that. You know, one of the things I did um, is just putting my um, the different authors I study in the Soviet Union on a map where their birthplaces are to try to get a sense of where they all are. And sometimes it surprises you that, for example, the um, Kyrgyz writer Chinggis Aitmatov grew up in an area that's actually much closer to Moscow than the um, Russian-Siberian writer um, Valentin Rasputin. So for me, I, as a person who doesn't work with maps as mm-hmm. much, just being in this um, place at Harvard where people are always talking about mapping and we have some we have courses where you can learn how to do it and it's yeah. just kind of in the air. It's been something that has started to uh, I've been starting to use it just my own little tools that I'm making on Google Maps for my own research to keep track of things and already started thinking more spatially. Mm-hmm. And Professor O'Neill, mm-hmm. if I may ask to conclude our podcast, how can people who are listening who are working on the history of Russian Empire? Mm-hmm make use of the Imperia project? Like, are they, can, well, can internet users get on yes, there and put their data? they yeah. can. And um, there's a certain amount of material that is freely available through the world map platform. So if you, oh gosh, I won't remember the URL, but if you Google Harvard world map, you'll go to the world map platform and you can just plug in Russia and the Imperia project will, will pop right up. All of the layers that are up there, um, you can, you can, click through them and, and look at them. Some of them are downloadable. Others aren't because of um, particular issues with um, with permissions. But um, there's a vast amount of data that we have waiting in the wings to be uploaded to WorldMap as well. So there'll be a lot more mm-hmm. content coming online late spring and summer. But um, you can start playing with it now. And I, you know, I hope... Um, that that will be of interest. And I know it has been. I know that people have actually been looking at it and playing mm-hmm. around and thinking about how to use it and how it can inspire their own work. And I think one of the takeaways from this whole project has been that um, my maps might end up being of use to particular scholars, but the process of making them and the, the kind of methodology of historical GIS is something that is going to be valuable, I think, to to a lot of scholars across mm-hmm. fields. And if there's anything I can do to make their ex- their experience a little bit less painful than mine has mm-hmm. been, yeah. mm-hmm. I will do it. So yeah. <laughs> and I think it is a it is a really great resource simply because, you know, when I was studying um for my uh 
general examination field in um, Russian imperial history, we talked about how there isn't really a great historical atlas of the Russian Empire um, on paper still. So, um, you know, so if someone really wants to understand where things are, honestly, your resource is really like the best resource out there because the historical, um, sadly, the some of the the historic books of historical maps of the Russian Empire are really not as good as w- w- what anyone can access on the World Wide Web. Ura, ura. <laughs> and this is something that I've heard Lex Lex Berman talk about in a meeting of the first uh, meeting for the Digital Ottoman Platform uh, project, which is that you know what people are going to do with your GIS project might differ from what you imagine. In his case, he said that most people, like ninety percent of people, just wanted to make a map for their book, and so like part of their their mapping project was just being able to create an easier way for people to make maps and so you do have these sort of multiple uses ranging from the relatively um uh quotidian and in historical terms uh to to, as you talked about earlier more sophisticated uh sort of dh analysis and i want to remind our listeners that we've got we've got a link to the imperia project on our website uh, ottomanhistory.com that will be there alongside uh the bibliography uh for this podcast and um yeah, once you hear the word bibliography, you probably know that the sh- the show is coming to a close. Uh, we, we've we've talked a lot of uh, we've talked about a lot of great subjects today. The incorporation of Crimea into the Russian Empire, how that influenced the Russian Empire. We've talked about uh, a, a sort of a little a, look, a little close up look at the slave trade in the Black Sea. We've talked a little bit about historical GIS as well. Professor O'Neill, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast dealing with so many different topics and questions in one sitting it's been a real pleasure pleasure is all mine thanks so much for having me thank you thank you Aaron, for joining us today Look thanks forward for to letting me hop into the co-hosting sure. chair <laughs> look forward to having you along in a future episode now for those who are listening and want to find out more about and want to find out more about today's topic visit our website autumnhistorypodcast.com that's where you'll find the other episodes not only produced by Michael Polchinski for the Wild Field but also for Ottoman History Podcast pertaining to uh, the the Russian Empire and the world around it in particular. I want to remind you to join us on Facebook. We've got over 20,000 followers there. You can strike up a little conversation in the Facebook group and also use that group to keep track of our latest content. I want to invite you to join in next time on the Ottoman History Podcast. Uh, And until then, take care.